0: We're live. Good day, everyone. Welcome back to Ideas Matter. Good to be back with you. It's been a while. It's we always a- say that, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there have been many delays on my part in uh, getting to this one. We were going to do it earlier, but uh, I have had a number of things come up, such as the flu and not reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> but we're finally back at it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we're finally we're finally sitting down with Aristotle. The Nicomachean Ethics. I think that's right, Nicomachean. I'm just going to call it the Ethics right. for the duration of this podcast, which is what a lot of other people do as well. we'll just call it the Ethics. Um, yeah, we were sort of discussing before we started recording that it's not really a hugely enjoyable read.
0: <laughs> no, it feels like reading an instruction manual, like you've just bought some new electronic device and you're just flipping through the manual.
1: Yeah, pretty much. A manual in this case on how to be a good human or what is human excellence, um, but look, I I don't know what, it, what what edition do you have? Is it a, the Penguin one? I got the Oxford. Oh, nice. I prefer those actually. Um, but the I, w- I was reading the intro as I usually do, and I I found out that actually the text that we have of this is thought to be Aristotle's lecture notes, mm-hmm. um, and kind of was pasted together after the fact. So there's the first five or four books in this, are uh, sort of one lecture or one series of lectures. Mm-hmm. And then the second half is actually another series of lectures. And so that explains There's I didn't notice it cause I didn't read it carefully enough. There's apparently a bit of discontinuity in his argument in the first and second half of the book. So that explains that. And it also explains why it's not particularly readable because he just, it's literally like if you read my notes, I mean, that wouldn't be intelligible to anyone except me. Um, so you shouldn't really judge the man too much, I suppose, because we're not actually reading something that he thought was going to be read by other people. Um, but nonetheless, it it's, was still, I think, a valuable read, would you say?
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Look, it, it's not, it wasn't fun. No, it wasn't fun. But I feel like I got a lot out of it.
1: Yeah. Which is that interesting, you know, uh, perhaps <laughs> he's living his philosophy <laughs> because pleasure <laughs> does not equate to the good, right? <laughs> so it was not pleasurable to read Aristotle, uh, but that's no indication of whether it's good for you or not.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Unity of form and content.
1: There we go. All right. Thanks, folks. See you next time. <laughs> um,
0: are we, we should have a little intro to Aristotle. So mm. he... Is a uh, I'm, I'm sure pretty much anyone who's listening to a philosophy podcast has some idea of who he is. Uh, ancient Greek philosopher, considered one of the fathers of philosophy. He was a pupil of Plato, um, and funnily enough, tutor of Alexander the Great. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, so he had a bit of a he was quite a break from Plato's views. So you you injects a lot of that sort of grand metaphysical I like you know, uh, idea of the forms and these overarching concepts. Uh, he he takes a bit of a different approach. So it, it's very interesting to read him um, and see the break between Plato and Aristotle.
1: Yeah, that's actually, that is actually a great place to start because um, you, you people would have heard the phrase, you know, all Western philosophy is just a footnote to Plato. Mm. I mean, and then I guess you can think of Aristotle as footnote number one, mm. right? Uh, and you're right, he does very much... I mean, he knew Plato, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they were con- actually contemporaries of Aristotle's a bit younger.
0: I mean, yeah, he was like directly a pupil of Plato. Yeah. Like he, he was a student of Plato's. Yeah.
1: So he's like explicitly responding to Plato. Um, and the most interesting part where that comes across in, in this book uh, is on his sort of rejection of platonic forms, mm. which he doesn't. Unless I missed missed it, he doesn't say explicitly. He rejects the forms. But he talks about this idea of the good. Mm. uh, And he gives this analogy, which I thought was quite helpful, uh, where he says, you know, when we talk about the concept white, so I'm looking at my white coffee cup and your white coffee cup, um, the concept white is the same in both of those particular instances. Or even if we take the white of the coffee cup and the white of snow, it's the same concept, white being instantiated in these two different examples, and then Aristotle says, "But the good is not like that. When we say what's good for humans, or what's good for I don't know, cows, or what's good for etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, when we answer those questions, we're not talking about the same the same concept, good. So when it comes to the good life and ethics, Aristotle thinks it actually matters what you're talking about. Mm. Uh, so he has a much more particularist ethical conception, which I I very much agree with. Because um, his whole thing is Aristotle's theory of the good is not based necessarily in this abstract metaphysics, but rather on a very detailed conception of what it is to be a human. Mm. And once you work out what it is to be a human, then your
0: ethics follows from that. Mm. And he does have this line where he says, look, even if there is some sort of transcendent good, uh, good on the level of the gods. Well, it's sort of by definition unattainable by humans, and therefore is sort of irrelevant to any sort of ethical discussion. Because, like, what what does that even mean to like living your life day to day? Let's, as you say, let's look at the particular actions you can take. Yeah, he's very
1: much about always looking into the particulars, mm-hmm. um, which is why, I mean, when I made a post, I wrote a little summary of the book after I finished reading it, and I mentioned that. Um, being someone who's sympathetic to communitarianism and political realism, Aristotle is really important to both those traditions. And the communitarian stuff is kind of obvious because obviously everyone knows Aristotle famously said man is a social animal. Um, So he's not talking about individuals. But the realism stuff really comes out of this. It's about, well, you can't can't have these sort of abstract moral norms that you apply regardless of the context. You actually have to study... The particulars, mm. um, so that's how he sort of feeds into political realism as well.
0: Yeah. So let's let's just jump right into it because we're, we're already touching on a lot of stuff. Uh, how how does he start out his project? What's what's he aiming at here? Yeah. So
1: it, I think I think the the first thing to say is that um, when Aristotle's talking about the good or what is ethical or what is morally right, we have to sort of disabuse ourselves of this um, post enlightenment way that we think about morality, which is very much, it's either utilitarian or it's deontological. Deontolo- I hate that word. It's deontology. it's <laughs> like, oh, well, either we're doing the greatest good for the greatest number or we're treating someone as, a, as an end in themselves. So it's very much about applying ethical principles. Um, but that's not how Aristotle thinks about ethics. And I think the actual translation of the book, the title of the book, if I wrote this down somewhere, um, is, pause for dramatic effect. Ah, here we go. The ethics translates to matters to do with character, and moral virtue more accurately translates as excellence of character, or just simply excellence. So when Aristotle's talking about ethics, um, I wrote in my notes that one might say the ethics is not a work of moral philosophy at all, but rather a book on human excellence. Um, but that's how he conceived of ethics. It was about how to be a good human. And that obviously encompasses your entire being. It doesn't just encompass what we would regard as individual moral acts today. Um, so he starts out by saying, as I said before, well, when we talk about the good, we're not talking about this singular concept, this platonic ideal. We're talking about the good for humans. And then he goes, well, what is the good for humans? He says, well, it's our ultimate aim. It's that which we aim at for its own sake. And then he goes through things like wealth and fame and other things. He goes, well, if we really interrogate these sort of things, people who go after public honor or wealth, what we really find is they're usually doing them as a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And the actual end of human life, our ultimate aim is happiness. So the good for humans is, is happiness. We just want to be happy, uh, which, of course, raises more questions than it. And it answers and he goes well how do we actually be happy and then he sort of gives a cliff notes version of his of his ethical theory that he then spends the whole book kind of going about um but he but he says that happiness first of all it's not it's not an emotional state like that's how we think about it today as this kind of subjective mental state that will come and then it will naturally pass it's necessarily fleeting it's an emotion He's not thinking about happiness as an emotion. For him, happiness is a way of living. And he actually says you can only judge whether someone's happy at the end of their life. And you look at the whole course of their life and say, that man lived a happy life. And so it's a, it's a way of living. It's an activity. Uh, and for him, it's activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. So the full quote is, the good for man or the good for humanity is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. So happiness for humans is when we act in accordance with virtue, which still, you know, raises more questions than it answers because what's virtue, but we'll get to that. But for Aristotle, the point of human life is to be happy and being happy is living a certain way and that way of living is living virtuously. So if you want to be happy, you need to learn how to live virtuously.
0: And he does use a particular word in the Greek to describe happiness. Um, It's something that will come up if you look more into Aristotle or... I've seen this come up in like self-help and stuff. Like I I remember going to, uh, I I didn't go to it. I was doing a, uh, placement at a school when I was doing my teaching degree and we had a positive psychologist come in and give a talk and you brought up this term that Aristotle uses, which is eudaimonia. Yeah. That also comes up in,
1: um, psychology mm. because my, my partner's doing psychology and, she, I saw in her writing the term like eudaimonic happiness, mm.
0: and yeah, and it's, like you said, it's it's something that is a result of sort of virtuous action and living right, living virtuously, and it's not like you say it's not so much the sort of feeling of goodness and pleasure that well, feeling that you get when you uh, are doing pleasurable things or you're feeling pleasure. It's not it's not that same feeling. It's sort of like a sense of contentedness.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I agree. I think contentment is probably the, the most analogous concept that we have mm. in English.
0: Yeah. Is contentment. Yeah. Um, but he does add some caveats, which I find interesting, because I remember we were talking about this and uh, you said that there, there are some things that don't really square with the idea that these are some vir- these virtues or this conception of the good life can be applicable to everyone. Mm. And he, he does open up by saying, this isn't for everyone. Uh, it's aimed at like a well-educated, well-raised audience. Like, this that's, is. that's true. And he, he does say there are external components to happiness as well. So he says, good birth, uh, good children, if you have children, so you have like a nice family, uh, even beauty. So he says, if you're like really, really ugly, you just can't be happy. Yeah, and um, uh, also material comfort and positive relationships. So there are like a lot of external factors that come into ha- even having the capacity to act virtuously and live a good life in Aristotle's view. That's a that's a good point.
1: Um, yeah, there's I guess two things there. Is is again, there's he's he's not anti egalitarian because that would that would imply that he's aware of it and is setting himself against it. But our modern notion of equality. It's just not even at play here.
0: Yeah, the ancient Greece uh, was, a, well, ancient Athens as well, uh, in Aristotle's particular case, is a very hierarchical society. Yeah. Like he, he consciously talks about uh, slaves uh, in the ethics and talks about how they're not capable of yeah. exercising virtue or feeling happiness because they lack the freedom to do so, right? So there is a real sense that, this sort of thing he's talking about is closed off to a lot of people. It's only for a certain set of people who have the capacity, um, who have the well, what he would consider the the inner capacity, uh, say mentally and emotionally, but also the outer capacity. So your circumstances, your material comfort, your freedom to actually live in this way,
1: which as you which as you allude to, is like at that time would have depended on slavery.
0: Yeah, and also citizenship mm. uh, is—you have to be a member of a of a polis, uh, of a city-state—to do these sorts of. Well, uh, the the way that you're acting, th- these virtues—they're they're lived in relation to other people, in a sense. There are some like internal ones, like, mm. um, I don't know, uh, say like wisdom. You know, he talks about like philosophical. Contemplation, which is sort of like an internal thing, it's something you can do on your own, but there are these other virtues that he brings up, like being, like magnanimous and charitable, or uh, being pleasant, liberal, liberal, by yeah. which he
1: means spending money.
0: Yeah, and those things are done in community, in relation to other people who are willing to sort of maintain a relationship with you as well. Mm. Right, so thus man is a social animal. Yeah. Like he he starts out by saying that uh, the science of the human good is politics. So mm. he, he sees ethics, this <laughs> he sees ethics as just being a sort of branch of politics. It's like, there are, how, how do you act in relation to yourself and in relation to other people, which when you uh, take that writ large is a political matter.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very, all very, very, very true. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, you might read a book of philosophy today, and even if it does say that like, well, this is not accessible to everyone, they probably wouldn't say, but those who it is accessible to, you're better. Yeah. Whereas Aristotle's like, no, I mean, this is an aristocratic text. Yeah. I mean, an aristocracy just means rule by the best, right? Mm. That's what it literally means. Um, so bear that in mind as, as you're know,
0: as you contemplating Aristotle as that's kind of where he's coming from. I mean, it's literally partially in his name, aristocracy, Aristotle. I mean, it's the same root word. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: The other point about that that I wanted, to, which I think is important, is how you say that this does depend on external things. And that's also another reason why Aristotle is picked up by communitarians. Because he says, look, you, even though the good, the good life is kind of this contemplative state, jumping ahead a little bit, it's very rational, it's very intellectual. He does say, well, you you do need a certain degree of material comfort to actually be able to do this. Mm. Uh, and I guess I suppose, in a sense, the communitarians today sort of take that part of Aristotle without the ar- aristocratic part mm. and they try and make this way of life as accessible to everyone mm. because, yeah, you need... You need shelter, you need food, you need your health, you need friends, you, n- you need all these things to actually have a good life. Um, so that's another reason why he's very important to communitarians. Yeah,
0: I, I do notice that a lot with like historic philosophers. So like when people today read or comment upon them, they comment on them through the lens of egalitarianism, mm. which just wasn't a fact of their lives and their times. Like I, I see the same thing... Uh, Alex challenge go through an entire podcast episode without mentioning nature. (laughs) That's probably the biggest one where he's like self-consciously aristocratic and anti-egalitarian. But when you read him, so much of the commentary sort of treats that as being like incidental and like oh, let's just take the good parts that we like. Well, yeah, I mean that's because most philosophers are not intellectual historians.
1: Yeah, Uh, you should read. I mean, if you want to, it's kind of boring. But Quentin Skinner's got a really good essay called "Meaning." Meaning and truth in history. I don't know. I'll put it in the show description. It's an essay by Quentin Skinner, mm. which is really, really seminal in intellectual history and kind of kickstarted this whole way of doing intellectual history called the Cambridge School, where he talks about this fallacy. I can't remember how, the the term that he that he uses, but he says, yeah, the way that we we go back and we read, we kind of construct this narrative, like Plato. Aristotle responds to Plato, then you've got the medieval scholastics, and then you've got the Enlightenment, and they're all reading each other and that's this great, never ending story. And they're all responding to one another. And he says the fallacy that we make is that we project concepts back in time. Mm. And as you say, like we read Aristotle through the lens of egalitarianism, uh, or we 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 pick up certain ideas and we go, Ah, here we can see the seeds of this idea mm. that's actually that bears fruit two thousand years later. And Quentin Skinner goes, "That's just utter nonsense. To, that's like tele- a teleological reading of history, of, of the history of ideas." And he completely rejects it. And you're right; that is how a lot of people read um, these ancient texts, mm. which is a, an approach to reading them that I do not share. Mm. Like, I think we should actually just read them yeah. as they were intended.
0: A hundred percent agree. Anyway, let's let's I, I took us on that tangent. But let's let's actually just get into the details of his ethical theory here, because. It, it, a lot of it does sort of feel like a proto self help text it's i suppose i mean yeah like it's like uh, it, it's not really saying like you you ought to do this and you ought to do that it's more like here are the factors that make a virtuous man and lead to a happy life and you can sort of reverse engineer uh advice from those factors yeah i well yeah
1: he does draw a distinction between theoretical science or theoretical knowledge and practical and he says ethics and politics comes under the domain of practical. And he says explicitly that we don't, we don't read about how to be happy as some kind of abstract cognitive exercise. We read about it so we know how to do it. Mm. So in that sense, yeah, I I, I guess you're right. Mm. Um, well, I guess I'm just not sure to what extent I thought he succeeded in really giving a kind of guide on how to be moral. Mm. Um, but... I think just to backtrack a little bit so remembering that Aristotle says the goal of human life is to be happy and happiness is quote or well, the good man the good for man and the good meaning happiness is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue so that so to discuss his ethical theory we we have to say well what what is virtue right so that's really the whole hinge point around which this around which this happens mm. um, and virtue for Aristotle, uh, is aiming at the golden mean, um, which is a fascinating concept. Um, it it kind of gets straw manned as like aiming at the middle, or aiming at the median, or just being moderate in everything that you do, which is not what he means, because that, again, would be formulating an abstract rule and applying it to every context, but rather it's the mean relative to us. So. We should, virtue is at all times trying to avoid the two extremes of deficiency and excess. Uh, But what that actually looks like is going to differ depending on the person you're talking about, the activity that you're doing, uh, and other people who are involved. So if you're naturally cowardly, um, how you aim at the golden mean would be to kind of deliberately push in the other direction, Uh, whereas if you're naturally quite brash, you would have to do the opposite, right? So you kind of, it's very, very particular to the the individual and to the circumstances, Um, which incidentally, if you remember from the episode that we did on uh, Confucius, I think I mentioned this in my thesis, where Confucius gives two disciples ask him the same question, and he gives conflicting advice. Yeah, I remember this. And yeah. someone overhears him and he goes, "My guy, what's why why are you telling, you know, why are you telling him one thing and telling him the other thing?" And Confucius says, "Well, because he's naturally very brash and he's naturally very cautious. So I try to rein him in and I try and spur the other one on." And it's the same idea here in Aristotle. Mm. Is to actually aim at the golden mean is different for every person.
0: Yeah, it's it's virtue is a practice. It's a thing you do, um, and the way you do it depends on the scenario. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I really like that part of it. Um, he, he has this line: "States of character arise out of like activities," which I think really encapsulates his whole thing. It's in a sense like you are what you do. Yeah, um, if you act uh, very lazily. Uh, you're very uh, given to satisfying your immediate pleasures, then you're a lazy person who uh, is given to uh, satisfying your immediate pleasures. There's no like, there's no like core in you where it's like this shut off area uh, where you're like, no, you're you're really like a a good productive person there, mm-hmm. but you're like, I don't know, a layabout who does uh, who drinks and does drugs all the time on the outside but inside there's just this good. You, Aristotle's stance is no, like in a sense like you are what you do. Yeah. The things you practice ends up becoming who you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um and that's which like, makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah,
0: and that and that goes into the whole idea of it being like practical wisdom. Like right? this isn't some like abstract stuff. It's it's about like the here and now. What are you doing moment to moment?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Which comes up in an interesting way in the book on justice um, where he talks about, um, you know, we should only punish someone basically if they do something of their own volition, right? So not if it's kind of an external cause that's forcing them to act a certain way. And you read that and you go, oh, that's kind of very modern and um, pro-rehabilitative justice. But then you keep reading and you learn that actually the scope for personal responsibility for Aristotle is quite large mm. because he goes, well, you can't um, you can't get out of of doing something wrong by pleading ignorance because he actually says, well, you have a responsibility not to be ignorant uh, because we know like doing certain things will make you more ignorant. And he's like, you have
0: a responsibility not to do those things. It's like that Dave Chappelle skit. Um Sorry, officer. I didn't know I couldn't do that. Yeah, exactly. it would be like, no, that's not. <laughs> that's not on. You can't.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you you do know that you need to go and find out how to do it, right? Yeah. And, and so he. And then he also says in that same chapter that you have a responsibility to take good care of your health. Mm. Uh, and so you can't just say, "Oh, I'm you know I'm uh, I'm sick." It's like, but you, owe, you're responsible for being in a state that made you more predisposed to being sick. Yeah. To, to Aristotle. Yeah. So it's this very kind of like you are what you do, and because you can always control what you do, mm. um, then you bear some sort of responsibility for it.
0: Yeah. And he, he's not like, like we said earlier, people are tended towards one way or the other. It's not like he's a blank slateist, and mm. you can completely one hundred percent rewrite who you are, but. The idea is that you work on the things in you that need working on. You you push more in some directions and you rein in other directions and that's not going to be the same for all people. But, yeah, I did find that really interesting reading this. There's like a persistent thread of mentioning like physical excellence mm. when he's discussing virtues. So he'll talk about like athletes and exercise and like physical beauty mm. and like good diets uh, and all of that. I've, I found that like a really interesting sort of insight into like the ancient Athenian ancient Greek sort of worldview where that is part of moral character. Like to be a good person is to be like a fit, like an athletic, like a, a physically beautiful person.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, I think again, because it's because his idea of ethics really is being a good human is not, again, when I say being a good human, he means being an excellent human, um,
0: An excellence. Physically, as well as...
1: Yeah, because that's what it is you know. to be a human. I mean, if yeah. you say, like, for example, this is a good laptop, right, it's because it's a good laptop because it performs its functions. Mm. And so, much in the same way, like, an excellent human is a human that can fulfill all their functions, and that's not just this kind of Cartesian disembodied mind. That's that's only one part of of, of what it is to be a human. There's all this physicality as well. So, Yeah. I'm I'm on board with him. There. Aristotle says hit the gym. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs>
0: hit the gym. He was a wrestler, right? His academy, didn't his academy also teach wrestling? I think so. I I know that was one hundred percent the case with Plato. Um look, I it was such a big part of the culture in ancient Greece that like I, I can't imagine that Aristotle wouldn't have some sort of like physical training mm. in his school as well. What a legend. All right, that's how you do it. Um also, he is anti kuma so Kuma's <laughs> <laughs> If you're a Kuma, Aristotle's not for you. Uh, where did this? Where does this come up? As, well, he, he talks about. Oh, I mean, like,
1: you mean like temperance and sexual yeah, pleasure? Yeah, all when all he's
0: talking stuff. about the virtues, he also mentions vices, and uh, he talks about self-indulgence. And like some people think that self-indulgence is uh, a path to happiness because you're fulfilling your pleasures, but he says, "Well, it's a pleasure of an animal, not of not of like a, a man." So yeah, I, I noted that, and then underneath I noted anti Kuma. Anti Kuma. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs>
1: um, this is high level philosophy, folks. Yeah, <laughs> this is what it all comes down to: Is Aristotle hit a Kuma, g- a Duma, or a Bloomer?
0: <laughs> I'd say he's a he's definitely Bloomer philosophy. Yeah,
1: he's Bloomer philosophy. Don't for be sure. a
0: Kuma. Hit the gym.
1: Yeah, he, yeah, he's definitely not Duma. Um, okay, no, but like in all seriousness. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, I feel like, is one of the discrepancies in his, in his thought because, yeah. like, you're right, he's talking about physical excellence as well. Uh, and this actually surprised me about reading Aristotle because when he says, well, what is it to be a human? What is the distinctive part of humanity that that makes us have a concept of ethics? It's our rationality, mm-hmm. which I didn't expect. I thought he would be much more kind of holistic about it, but he was still very in, very Socratic in, in this sense. He was like, well, you know, humans are rational creatures and this plays into his whole idea of the good life is the supreme virtue, the one that leads to happiness, is contemplation of knowledge. Mm. Uh, it's this kind of contemplative, when the rational part of the soul or the mind, as we would call it, is reflecting upon knowledge. Um, that's when Aristotle thinks we are like exercising our highest faculties mm. and therefore by default, at the highest stage of what it is to be human. And that's going to give us the most, the most happiness. So on the one hand, you're right, like he, he, the physicality is really important, but I guess I was actually surprised the extent to which he really goes, no, but the good life, like mm. what we're all aiming for, is really this quite contemplative thing, this mm. highly rational, highly intellectual life, which uh, I just didn't really expect.
0: Yeah, yeah. I found that like a really interesting sort of split uh, in his thinking where he spends so much of the book talking about these virtues that are like practical virtues and the different lives that are best embody those. So he talks about like politics or like military life as being places where you can – Be you know, exercise the virtues of being liberal, or uh, the virtue of being brave or honourable, and whatnot. But then, yeah, he gets to the end and he says, "Well, no, the contemplative, uh, the contemplative life is really the one that would lead to sort of the purest form of happiness. Like that, and the best forms of happiness. He says this at the end, are like leisurely, leisurely ones where you're not really like straining or working yourself all Mm. that much." and they're self-sufficient so they don't really depend on other things for you to exercise them so if you're brave if you want to be brave and lead a brave life in the military say that depends on things outside of yourself to be even be able to exercise that virtue of bravery whereas if you're you know you want to be you know intellectually wise you want to you know be a contemplating philosopher that doesn't really depend on other stuff uh to a, to a small extent, it does. But yeah, like yeah, I, I found that really interesting. And he even talks about uh, being a hermit, and says that look, you, you could just be a hermit, yeah, uh, if 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 you have the sort of temperament uh, and you have the means to do so, you could just sort of shut yourself off and you know sit around contemplating all day, and you could live a very happy life, which I thought was. Yeah, it it was like a strange sort of, I I don't want to say leap because it still fits within the terms of his argument, but it was just a very big tonal shift from the stuff he was talking about earlier that was very like social and communal.
1: Yeah, well, again, I think this is probably the fact that this is really kind of two different lecture series stitched Mm. together to make a book. Uh, And this is, again, this is something that Quentin Skinner talks about. He goes, this is a fallacy that we have when we reread these great works is that we assume there must be some sort of coherence, as if they're not just flawed humans who have mm. cognitive dissonance yeah, uh, or who thought different things at different times in their life. And he goes, well, you know, when philosophers go back and they read these texts, they try, and, they try and find the coherence. They do this, like, deep exegesis and try and find some sort of theoretical coherence. And he goes, well, actually, maybe it's just there isn't any coherence. Maybe it is a contradiction. All that being said let me let me go and find the coherence uh, <laughs> i i think probably he probably thinks that the physicality and the sociality and all these things are necessary mm. to realize the kind of good life that he's talking about i mean that's kind of at least how i read it you can't you, you even a hermit can't really go and be a hermit unless they've had some sort of upbringing Mm. in which they were educated and they learnt the skills to how to survive by themselves. Like you actually just, you can't really go and do these things. You can't be fully contemplative and rational unless you live in a society in which other things are taken care of Mm -hmm. by other people. Um, And it's interesting, like a, a, a modern communitarian will draw quite egalitarian conclusions from that, they'll go, well, yeah, I mean, everyone's kind of supporting everyone else. This is this social ecosystem that works together. Therefore, we should kind of... Everyone has a kind of base level of equality. But for Aristotle, it's like, well, no, like this this aristocratic, this good life depends upon the existence of a social hierarchy and of slaves doing all the menial labor so that people like Aristotle can sit around and be contemplative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which... I mean, that, that's my attempt to sort of impose some coherence on what, yeah. what seems like a discrepancy to me.
0: No, it, it makes sense. And right towards the end, uh, he does start talking about well, how does this relate to law and like the running of a government? Because in Aristotle's conception, the government should be sort of encouraging you know, cultivating virtues in its people and punishing vices. And the whole sort of tenor of the book up to this point is uh, the idea that you can, you know, you can act according to virtue uh, through your reason. You can figure out through reason what is the virtuous thing to do in any given situation. And you can orient your life towards virtue and towards goodness mm. um, through thinking about it pretty much. But that's all, like we've said, like predicated on the idea uh, that you're in a position and that you have the capacity to do so. And at the end, he says, uh, um, laws and customs should be in place to inculcate virtue, right? So the government should be oriented towards that. But most people obey necessity rather than argument and punishments rather than the sense of what is noble. So for the majority of people, the majority of the population, they have to be sort of treated with a carrot and stick approach Mm. to acting in this way. You can't rely on their rationality according to him, which I... uh, Right under that. Aristotelian Singapore question mark. <laughs> Aristotelian Singapore. Love that. It reminds me of
1: the whole Asian values debate that was took place in the nineties in international relations. Like are uh, Asian societies naturally more communitarian, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyway. What was I gonna say? Fuck. Um, no, he he, he says he does say you're right that this sort of carrot and stick approach and he goes, well, what, like, what is it that, that shapes human behavior? It's pleasure and pain.
2: Hmm.
1: Avoidance of pain, trying to gain pleasure. Um, so he says like that's kind of how you manipulate human behavior. Hmm. And he does see that as something that's sort of like writ large
0: for everyone. Yeah. Like he, even, even an aristocrat. Yeah. Like he, he says that, uh, in educating the young, we steer them by the rudders of pleasure and pain. So like presumably he's talking about someone in his own social set.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, this is yeah. You need a state. You need a community to basically give you the ability to act virtuously. Mm-hmm. But there's one really interesting part, uh, which again sort of ties in with similarities with Confucianism, where he talks about how, um, let's say you're trying to become more temperate, by which is just this not, not this hedonistic indulging of all the central pleasures, Mm. um, be it food or or sex or whatever. So let's say you're trying to become more temperate. That's going to be really hard at first. Um, But as you said before, dispositions are the results of habits. And so he says that it's going to be really hard to become more temperate or insert virtue to become more brave. But the more you do it, the easier it will get. So it becomes a sort of virtuous cycle, uh, which again is an idea that also crops up in Confucianism, this idea that the more that you do something that is moral, at first you won't enjoy it, uh, but the sage is someone who does it so much that it becomes second nature and they actually start to enjoy it. And at that point, they spontaneously act virtuously Mm. because it's part of their nature. And it's this... Similar idea here with Aristotle is the more, the more virtuously you act, you become virtuous and then you don't actually have to try as hard to be virtuous, uh, which is an interesting idea, but it actually sort of seems to contradict something he says earlier in the book, where he goes, well, how do you know when something's virtuous? He says, because it's innately pleasurable. So if you're, I don't know, reading a book and contemplating knowledge, he'd say, well, that's naturally or innately enjoyable and you don't need any additional pleasure. And when I was reading this I thought, okay, interesting. Like I don't know, maybe sort of going out and having fun if you can't enjoy that experience without also like I don't know doing a bunch of drugs, Aristotle might say, well that's not in, you're not you're doing something that's not innately pleasurable. Yet. You need to add on more pleasure to enjoy this activity. Mm-hmm. Whereas a, a virtuous activity is innately enjoyable. So he says sort of says it at the start of the book. But then in the middle, he sort of says, well, yeah, these things suck at first, and it takes a lot of practice to actually come to enjoy them.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's another discrepancy, I thought. Yeah, yeah. No, that that is interesting. Yeah. Is, yeah, even stuff like reading philosophy, you know, if you, if you gave Aristotle to, let's say, like a, a switched-on 14-year-old, they wouldn't enjoy reading it. I didn't enjoy reading it either. (laughs) But then again, like perhaps it's not that it's, fuck, I don't even know, man. (laughs) I think that, yeah, that is just a hole in his argument. I think we just have to return to Quentin Skinner and be like,
1: we don't impose coherence on these thinkers. Right. Mm. Like I think the way he says it's like, don't assume that a book written by someone is, was intended to be the ultimate canonical statement of everything they ever thought. Mm. It's just not how humans
0: work, I mean, yeah, like he he literally does have like another ethical text that is slightly different to this, yeah, so yeah, it's as old man Skinner says, uh, principal Skinner, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we we shouldn't really be imposing a coherence on this, but i uh, on that idea of you know uh sort of training yourself uh over time to enjoy pleasure that. I really like that idea and it it is something that you see pop up now in even just in the, you know, pop culture, uh, in things like pop psychology and self-help, you know, like the power of habit, like through doing something over and over again, it becomes easier to do so. Well, look, yeah, the,
1: the irony with all that sort of stuff is like, I see all these like self-help people being like, self-help says you should read. They just keep reading self-help books. hmm. And it's like, well, why don't you just read other books? because that's kind of what it's telling you to do. It's not telling you to read 50 different self-help books that all tell you you should read. <laughs> like, read one self-help book, it tells you you should read. And then go and fucking read, I don't know, like, some fiction or some Aristotle or some Plato. Like, don't just keep reading more and more and more self-help. But anyway, like, you just
2: <laughs> I, get,
1: I get triggered by that on Instagram. I just see these, like, pages that they just read self-help books over and over and over and over again. It's mm. the same fucking book, just, like, slightly rewritten by a different author where it's like, you should – Leaders read. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but they don't read fucking self-help. They read Machiavelli. They read Aristotle. They read Plato, you know? Anyway, I digress.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nah, look, is, is there anything else we should touch on with this? I mean, look, I just want to put it out there
1: um, that I look personally share Aristotle's vision of the good life. I think what he describes is like what, would make me happy. Mm. If I had the sort of material comfort to just get up every day and and read and, and think and, and contemplate knowledge, I mean, that would make me happy. So I don't disagree with him there. Where I have problems is with him saying, this is the good life. Mm. This is what, again, I, I I take your point that he's not saying everyone is capable of this, but he is saying
0: in some sort of way,
1: that it is the best. Mm. It
0: is the best way of life. Yeah, there's more value in this way than other ways.
1: Yeah, I and mean, so like you know, I am better because that's my idea of happiness. And I just don't, I just don't think that that's. I don't see how you can say that. I just don't see how that's an intelligible thing to say because of so much else that's in Aristotle. Like, I can't do any of those things unless there are other people who are, who, who are going to do. Things that make society function. Mm. Like, if we were all philosophers, you know, nothing would ever get done. Mm. So, I don't, I just don't understand how you can say well, this is like objectively a superior way of living. I don't, and it's just highly convenient for a philosopher to say, well, it just so happens that the objective best way to live happens to be what me and other philosophers subjectively prefer. <laughs> No. <laughs> it's like when you read like you read philosophers who talk about freedom and they say, well what does it mean for a human to be free? And it, they just end up describing a philosopher. Right? So like a philosopher is like the most free human mm. and someone who, you know, reflects upon their second-order desires and and you know rationally assents to everything and you know has this really kind of introspective personality. That's just a personality. It, it doesn't make you more free. Uh, so, I think a lot of philosophers sort of make the mistake of thinking that they're the archetypal human and that every other human is kind of just this failed attempt at a philosopher. Mm. I don't, like, I just, I have too much humility to, to, to think that's true. I just wanted to put that
2: out there.
0: I find it more convincing when you read these, like, ancient philosophers who, like, let's take, like, I don't know, Socrates, for example where he did live that contemplative life, but he was also a wrestler and a war hero. Yeah, sure. So if you're well-rounded like that, then like, and Socrates says, no, this is the best way to live, then I, I, can, I can cop that. I'm like, yeah, fair enough, but
2: well, yeah, I, don't, okay. I, don't think
1: it, I don't think it
0: tracks to today.
1: Fair enough. I mean, I, I would agree with you that being well-rounded is important, and that's something that, like I guess, in academia sort of irks me, is that it's kind of this... A lot of academics sort of seem to have this quasi-Cartesian concept... Like they don't exercise, they don't eat healthy. They're just like, no, I just need to think. Mm. It's like, but, but exercising and you know eating healthy actually helps you think. <laughs> like you need you need to be a well-rounded human. Mm. Um, I agree with you there. Someone who is well-rounded is better. And someone who never engages with ideas and someone who never reflects and contemplates knowledge and has intellectual curiosity, yeah, I mean, I would agree. That's probably that's a flawed human. Um, but they don't all need to be like Aristotle and they don't all need to be reading these sort of great texts to be excellent humans I think I think yeah just maybe being well-rounded and that's what I like about the sort of ancient philosophers be it be it Aristotle Plato the stoics is it does it does strike me as a more
0: well-rounded conception of of
1: human life
2: mm. yeah, yeah I
0: I agree 100% it's it's refreshing to read it uh, after you've been reading like contemporary philosophy yeah it it feels so like segmented and compartmentalised and like you said like there's this quasi-Cartesian thing going on yeah where, they are all just, they're just like, well, that's why they all die in their sixties. Mm. You know, these like you know, overweight philosophers
1: who chain smoke Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then they die. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah.
0: Like, <laughs> you're not a good human. Yeah. <laughs> you need some virtue, man. Yeah. And yeah, like going back to the thing of, you know, philosophers sort of tr- attempting to objectify their own sort of temperaments exactly. and, and their own mores. Like I think to, I, I've seen this one excerpt from Adorno where, yeah, fuck, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, he talks about, uh, like, athletic alpha males. Uh, he doesn't <laughs> use the term alpha males, but, you know, you know what he's fucking talking about. Yeah. Uh, uh, secretly uh, have, like, homoerotic urges and because they can't make sense of them. They take them out physically. Uh, uh. Or, like, there's this Baudrillard quote. And, and like, the Adorno's thing after that is, and that's bad. They're bad people for doing that. I'm more honest for being, like, a thinker who doesn't fucking exercise. And there's a Baudrillard quote I've seen where he talks about how like I don't know the people who go jogging uh reduce themselves to automatons. Yeah, or something like that. Like Or oh, you know they, Yeah, all
1: these there's something fascistic about men who go to the gym, yeah. right? They like, they're just like or or men who enjoy martial arts or I don't know, there's this like yeah, they impose this kind of morality onto it. Mm. I completely agree. Um yeah, I mean, there's this f- contemporary political philosopher called William Kimlicker who talks about liberal democracies as kind of being dictatorships of the articulate because you don't really choose. Like, to a certain degree, being articulate is genetic plus mm. good parenting and good education. It's, But it's not, it's not a guide to the morality of you as a human mm. or it's not... You know, like, uh, actually, um, one of my partner's PhD supervisor's said something quite interesting. Apparently they when they mark student papers, they don't give extra marks for good writing. Which really like bothered me because I always had to kind of lean on that. But they were like, well, good writing has no bearing on the underlying quality of the ideas and the argument. And I sort of think that's a bit philosophers and people who are naturally gifted at this kind of thinking sort of just tend to weaponize it. And be like, you know, like it's kind of unfair to, to 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 talk about the jogger or the or the or the alpha male who works out and write this book about how they're like shit people, mm. because you know that they can't do that back to you. Yeah. Right. It's the sort of same kind of thing. It's like you're weaponizing your natural skill and then just saying, oh, but actually, but, but what I happen to be naturally good at is just better than what they happen to be naturally good at, mm. and it's just not true.
0: Yeah. It's not true. (laughs) Look, man, to wrap up, (laughs) Aristotle (laughs) says, go hit the fucking gym. Go to the gym. But go to the gym,
1: but then go home and read. (laughs) And just be a well-rounded human. And be more like Aristotle. Be more like Aristotle, not like Plato. Go own some slaves.
0: (laughs) I do not condone owning (laughs) slaves. (laughs) Official Ideas Matter (laughs) podcast position. (laughs) Lily and Alex say, go own slaves.
1: (laughs) Oh, dear. All right. (laughs) Next time we will be back with Freud. Freud Freud-o-frog. Civilization and its discontents. We'll be back sooner than this one. Peace out. See ya.